I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about food insecurity caused by the war in Ukraine, we have with us Mvemba Dizolele, who is our Africa Program Director at CSIS, and Caitlin Welsh, who is our Global Food Security Program Director. Welcome to you both, colleagues. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Caitlin, I want to go to you first with a little bit of the news. Talks have just broken down between Turkey and Russia, who were negotiating over transporting grain. What do you know about this? What can you tell us about this? The crux of the issue is about getting Ukraine's grain out of Ukraine. As we know, Ukraine's ports have been closed for months at this point. All of the discussions to date, and this is not the only proposal that's been on the table, are essentially workarounds with the ultimate solution being one that the Ukrainian government has put forward that I think is the most obvious, which is just the cessation of conflict and and the reopening of, of ports. I'll note that of the incredible amount of grain that Ukraine produces, 98% of its grains flow through the Black Sea. There have been proposals to try to move grain by rail, by river, and alternative means. But at the end of the day, the entirety of Ukraine's agricultural infrastructure is set up to export its grains from producing regions south through its ports. And anything short of ceasing conflict and allowing grains to flow will be simply a workaround and, and, and a half solution. All right. So to put this in perspective, we're talking about 20 million metric tons of grain and seeds that are stranded in Ukraine, have been seized by Russia or are cut off, as you said, in Black Sea ports. The Ukrainian government has accused Russia of stealing wheat worth about 100 million. The question I have, Caitlin, is what can be done about this? Thank you for that question. I'll answer it in two parts. You mentioned the 20 million metric tons of grain that are reported to be stuck in silos at Ukraine's ports. I think about Ukraine's grains and agriculture in terms of a series of, of harvests. That 20 million tons of grains that are stuck are from last year's harvests that would have been exported had the had the war not happened. We can also think about the, the current crop, which was planted last year and uh, is on, in the ground now and ready for harvest and for export in the coming year. Again, from last year's crop, we see that 20 million tons are stuck in ports. From the current year's crop that's still in the ground right now, USDA is estimating a reduction of about 35% compared to last year. So that's 11 million metric tons of the crop that's in the ground right now that won't be able to be harvested. That's the situation right now when it comes to Ukraine's agriculture. When it comes to stealing grains, Russia stealing grains, that's one of a multitude of tactics that Russia has been using to completely undermine Ukraine's agricultural productivity for a variety of reasons. Um, actually, at CSIS, we've analyzed some satellite data um, that we'll be producing this week to help illustrate the extent of, of Russia's destruction across all aspects of Ukraine's agricultural infrastructure. And on top of this, there are also satellite images and reports of Russia stealing grain to resell to buyers, to net, net food importers. All right. So this brings me to you, Mvemba. The food crisis has, as a result of this war, has had a huge impact on Africa in terms of food insecurity. What can you tell us about that? Thank you, Andrew. I think that's an important question. Uh, the challenge with Africa is long before the Ukraine war, there was already food insecurity. And this is due to structural problems, but also to leadership problems. So when I say structural problems, we're talking about 
Obviously, Africa is home to a lot of arable lands. They're not lacking lands. They're not, they're not lacking people, a lot of people, a big population there. But infrastructure, how do the farmers or the villagers grow food and then get them to the market in the urban centers? In a lot of countries, the roads are not good, so you don't have that. Your policy as a country, what is your agriculture policy? How much do you allocate, how much of your budget do you allocate to the Ministry of Agriculture? How much autonomy you give them to push their own agenda that will then respond to the needs of the population? So you have issue of land tenure, title, who owns the land? In a lot of these countries, you have colonial policies or legacies of colonial administration that say the land belongs to the state. If that's the case, then the state determines who owns what as far as land, pieces of land. And that's complicated when a lot of administrations in a lot of those countries are not fully functional. Then you have a problem of access to credit. To grow food, you need equipment, however small. Microfinance uh, typically is not enough. You need to have a policy. Some countries have agricultural banks, you know, banque agricole, as they will call them in francophone countries, and so on. A lot of countries don't have this. And if they do, typically the money is going to the elite who have bigger farms, really industrial, but they're not catering to the people. They typically cater for export. And then I think there's also, for some other countries like in the South, places like South Africa, which is a developed nation, but South Africa is still grappling with the legacy of apartheid. This means, you know, for a lot of us, even here in the U.S., we have plots of land in our backyard. We grow our tomato. You know, we grow things in the backyard. They don't. They feed us for the season. Right. If there's enough for the season, it's more of like export a hobby. We grow, exactly. we grow tomatoes. But, yeah. We grow basil. Exactly. All kinds of yeah. In a lot of villages, a lot of cities, that's what also people do to supplement. In South Africa, it's very difficult because people just don't have access to land due to uh, apartheid. And those issues have not been resolved. Then they still haven't been resolved. Correct. And then the other issue is leadership, just the vision. How does a country deal with this? Uh, some countries have tried. I mean, a country like Kenya, the entire agriculture, the, the economy is really based on agriculture. So they're trying hard. Even countries like Nigeria, you know, groups like Dangote, the conglomerate there, for a long time they were not involved in, in food stuff. But now the Dangote group is really invested in nutrition and food stuff. So there's some changes there that are taking place, but we need bigger, bigger STEM, uh, bigger items, better, uh, better policies. But also the other thing that is important, I think, is countries dealing with each other, regional policies. You cannot have one country doing its own thing, closing borders or imposing tariffs on others and then expect that they will have a policy that makes sense. I'd like to add to Mbemba's comments, because of the factors that Mbemba just laid out, most countries across Africa are net food importers. And because of proximity to the Black Sea region, many countries rely on Russia and Ukraine for their wheat imports, which is the reason that African countries um, and countries in other regions are particularly affected by this crisis. So this brings me to my next question for both of you, and I want to start with Mbemba. The United States alerted several African countries very recently that Russian ships were headed towards them with the goal of selling grain that was stolen from Ukraine. However, of course, Africa, as you just pointed out, is in the midst of a major grain shortage. Hundreds of thousands of people are headed 
towards famine. So what is Africa to do? Are they going to purchase the grain? Is the United States being ethically correct and pressuring Africa not to buy it when they're in such dire straits? I think that's a tough case. One, uh, it needs to be proven. I mean, Africans would like to know what is the proof of this. You know, I think sure. they can take the U.S. words for it. We suppose that is correct, that the information is right. If you're starving and you need to feed your people, do you have the luxury of discussing to whom this grain belongs? If, if Russia is bringing you, the ship is in your port, you, the inclination will be to buy it. I think that's one. But this also drives, to, uh, drives another point. And the point is, should Africa, this debate has been out there, should Africa continue to consume things that they don't produce? Africans have grain. They have sorghum. They have millet. They have rice. Senegal has just been working over the last three years to increase the production of grain. Yeah, they, they, they had a target of 1.6 million, I think, metric ton. They fell a little short, but they've increased it from the 30% they had to there. So some countries are pushing certain things. If I might postulate, I don't necessarily think that the goal of the United States alerting these African countries to stolen grain being offered for sale was necessarily to persuade them not to purchase this food. I think it, it's part of the United States and other countries' efforts to bring Russia's wrongdoing to light. I think that it's very much in the, U, in the U.S. interest to make sure that countries in Africa and the net food importing countries around the world have access to sufficient supplies. All right, so it's not that they're alerting African nations don't buy this. They're just bringing it to the international attention that this is stolen goods. That's my sense. And I think that that's, that, 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 that's part of the reason that the United States is elevating food security to a top priority at the UN, in the G7, and other fora because of the risk of food insecurity to social unrest, to political instability, et cetera. I think the United States very much wants net food importing countries to be food secure, but at the same time also wants, again, to bring to light the variety of weapons that Russia is using in this war, including food. So to both of you is what can the U.S. and other allies do to support sending more supply of grain to Africa so that the countries there don't have to buy stolen goods so that most importantly, so they don't starve? I've been really pleased to see a comprehensive proposal put forward in UN discussions and in G7 discussions. I'm expecting big announcements out of the G7 summit at the end of June. What we've seen the United States propose so far has been comprehensive again in the sense that it has to do with increased funding for humanitarian needs, increased funding and increased production of fertilizers, which are need needed by food producing countries all over the world, high, middle and low income countries, investments in the resilience of agricultural systems, and then it increases in financing through a variety of mechanisms through the International Financial Institute. I think at this point, uh, we're in a time of crisis, the two parts to that solution. One is to engage, increase the, uh, the amount of food that they'll be trading with these African countries, the way that Caitlin just said. So I'm glad that to see U.S. and allies are pushing for that. But I think in the long run, what the, uh, the North, meaning the West, the U.S. and the European should do is actually help address some of the issues that I mentioned earlier, the issues of land tenure, access to credit, investment, mechanization of agriculture, so that Africans can start eating what they produce, first of all, and not being so dependent on things that most of them actually don't even eat, like barley and wheat. It's just bread, right? For most, it's because of bread stuff and, and things like that. But otherwise, 
the supplement they need, the nutritional food that they need for value is the stuff they should be growing themselves. What can the United States do to strengthen ties with African countries and help them prosper in this sense? I think the U.S. need to have, they need to lift the lands, the traditional lands through which they see Africa. I think the U.S. has a tremendous advantage compared to the Europeans because we typically lump both sides together. We see the Europeans in the U.S., but it's not actually, that's not the way it should be. The U.S. has no colonial legacy in Africa, just like China has no colonial legacy in Africa. Traditionally, the U.S. relies on the European to engage Africa, which is a problem because then the U.S. is engaging Africa through the European lens, which is often colonial lens, which has not evolved since the independence years. The U.S. should engage Africa directly in the way that USAID has tried to do in the past. Tremendous, big project, especially in terms of agriculture, big project across the Sahel, big project in places like DRC or even Mozambique and other places. So the U.S. has that capacity. What has always been baffling to the African is why the U.S. feels the need to transit through Europe to deal with the Africans. Chinese don't do that. Chinese go directly to the African, for better, for worse, but that's what Africans want. The U.S. has another advantage, not just the U.S. doesn't have the colonial legacy. Africans actually much closer to the, U the U.S. set of values, freedom, good governance, all that stuff. So these are low-hanging fruits, really, when you think about it. But the State Department, particularly, is not always wired to deal directly with the Africans in any sense, in any ways. Are they just stuck in their ways? I think they're just stuck in tradition. I think uh, there's a level of comfort. And to be specific, I'll give you an example. So if the U.S. is dealing with the Sahel, chances are the U.S. want to deal with the French to talk to the Sahelians, right. which is a problem because Africans see France as a problem. Yeah, I, I, just to, to add perhaps a different perspective on this, the United States does deal directly with African countries um, when it comes to food security in a couple of different ways. When it comes to our the U.S. government's long-term approach to food security, the Feed the Future initiative, the United States has country-specific plans and agreements with a number of countries directly across Africa. And of course, the U.S. government is also the largest donor to the World Food Program, which is helping to address the most acute needs across the continent. So just wanted to perhaps counter that with some examples based on my own time in, uh, at the State Department uh, on this topic. No, that's, that's very good. I think, of course, there's a spectrum of issues. I mean, these are not mutually exclusive positions, by the way. They go together. They live together. That ecosystem right. of engagement. Well, my point is simply like, we need to increase that direct engagement because it's not food stuff only, right? So today is about food, but tomorrow there'll be security issues. Mm -hmm. And then those relationships, so it's not, so it doesn't come across as just a humanitarian engagement. I think that's part of the way. Like we're saving you now that you're, going, you're about to starve, but it should be a relationship that it's longstanding and multidimensional. Can you all give me a sense of the meeting that Vladimir Putin had with the Senegalese president, who also happens to be the president of the African Union. This is Mr. Saul I'm talking about. Can you guys give me a sense of what happened with that meeting? Sure. Thank you. I'm happy to speak from a food security perspective and then turn over to, to Mvemba. But when it comes to, to food security, I think that it's quite interesting that President Saul spoke both about Ukraine and about Russia. He said that this crisis brought the cessation of exports from Ukraine and also from Russia because of sanctions. And I'd like to clarify that. So I find it incredible that Russia is stealing Ukraine's grain to resell it 
while at the same time, Russia is, is predicted to remain the world's top exporter of wheat for the coming year. They've been the, the world's top exporter since 2017 and are predicted to export over 39 million metric tons of grain in 2022 and 2023, compared to Ukraine's predicted 10 million metric tons. So Russia has decimated Ukraine's agriculture sector, incredibly reduced the amount of grain that Ukraine is able to to export. Russia will remain the top exporter and on top of all of this is stealing Ukraine's grain to resell in global markets. Why is it doing this? I, I don't think it's necessarily for the, for the revenue. I think that the most important thing that Russia is considering is the influence that it will and, and the relationships that it will continue to have through these sales of grain. Talk about having your cornflakes and eating them too. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that, it, that there really is no analogy for what's happening right now. We just, we just simply have to look at the situation and say that Russia is attempting to completely destroy Ukraine's agriculture sector and blame a global food crisis on sanctions put upon Russia. So it's like the ultimate insult and adding insult to injury. Yeah, it, it really is incredible. And I, I think it's very, very important for folks like us and other institutions and Western governments, et cetera, to get out there um, and to counter this message that it's sanctions themselves are the reason for this crisis, because that's absolutely not the case. So one point I want to add to what Ketan said is the symbolism of the visit. So, you know, over the last several months, we've seen like every time President Putin has met with other leaders. Uh, Europeans particularly, he received them in that room with 30-meter With a really table. long table. <laughs> table. That did not happen when he received Maki Sal and Musafaki. He received them just like you and I are sitting next to each other. So in the world of symbolism, it means a lot, all kinds of things. I think people are filling the gap. When he saw the Chancellor of Germany 30 meters apart, Maki Sal was so he's like, is he sending a message to the Africans like, you are welcome here? Obviously, I'm one of you. I'm going to be there with you, which is something I just think it's worth noting because that really stood in contrast to the way Putin has treated everybody else who's visited him, from Macron to uh, you name it. It's been the same, but not with the president of the African Union and the commissioner. One last thing I think it's just so interesting to me because it appears that President Putin is simply trying to curry favor and to continue to ensure support, or at least that countries are refraining from condemning him in the UN context Correct. through food trade. Correct. I mean, he's, he's seizing the moment for whatever interests that he find to be important to him. But I think there's a lesson there, however, whatever the lesson is, is, you know, speaking from the US perspective, a lot of African leaders feel like they don't have the type of access that is befitting their ranks as president, as prime minister, when they come, especially to the US. Here they go to Russia. Russia does what China also does. They give them the red carpet, the first class treatment that they feel is befitting to their ranks. So there's a message there. Sounds like we have some work to do. I think so. Kaylin, what are some of the other parts of the world that are really suffering due to this you know, crisis in Ukraine? Again, it's not just African countries. The countries that rely on the Black Sea for a significant proportion of their imports are countries that are in the general geographic vicinity, because for those countries, the shipping costs are going to be lowest. So you think they're generally countries in the Middle East, in North Africa, East Africa, and in Asia. The UN has announced that its food price index has leveled off only slightly over the past couple of months. It reached a, a record high in March of this year, and it's still at this point of almost 30% 
greater. So this is prices across the board than this time last year. When it comes to cereal prices across the board, cereal prices are about 30% higher than this time last year. And wheat prices in particular are over 56% higher than this time last year. So prices are increasing around the world because of this crisis. Um, And it's not just wheat, that's just one example, but also cooking oils and the high price of energy is also increasing the price of fertilizer. So all aspects of agriculture and food markets are being affected by this crisis. So it's not just Ukraine, but it's the overall inflation picture that we're dealing Mm -hmm. with. Yep. Yeah. This is certainly contributing to overall inflation, inflation that we're seeing around the world. This is increasing the price of um, of energy and food, which is contributing to that pressure. And this is being felt across the board, literally, like... You name it, the Sahel, Senegal, DRC, you talk to anyone on the ground, they're feeling the pressure. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So what can be done in the short term? Is there any short-term solution that the United States and our allies can help engineer? Yeah. Well, so the way that I think about it when it comes to food security in specific, and this does pertain to our response in African countries, there's often the the short-term response and the long-term response. Short-term response in the most acute crises will be humanitarian assistance, which we're helping to fund through the World Food Program in the Sahel, in the Horn of Africa, in other regions. There's a long-term response, which is investing in agricultural development, as Mbemba was explaining. I think that this crisis calls for a third type of response, which is a response in financing to help food importing countries to afford the price of imports. And these might be countries that aren't experiencing the most acute needs, but these are also countries where we can't simply say we're going to invest in your agriculture systems because that's, of course, going to take years and years. We need a quicker fix for these countries. Part of that is so Russia can no longer use hunger and grain to wield power, correct? Yeah, certainly. And uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov has actually admitted publicly that its own exports are a, a tool in this war, that it's using its food exports to curry favor around the world. So Russia is acknowledging this publicly. And of course, it's attacking Ukraine's agriculture infrastructure as a way to increase suffering within Ukraine, diminish revenues to the Ukrainian government, etc. But Russia is very deliberately and very publicly weaponizing food in this war. Colleagues, thank you very much for being with me today on this really critical issue for so many countries in the world. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 